the things we all carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. I'm sitting here on a Monday morning, almost afternoon. I've had a couple of phone calls this morning, uh, prospective guests, and I can't wait to record with those guys. Uh, I also heard from a couple of people over the weekend, and I don't know, maybe it was the tragedy in Loudoun County that, that brought people out of the woodworks in a way, and, and I guess tragedy has a weird way of doing that. People reach out and touch base with you, and they, they, they know that you're close by or and they, they reach out and they find out, you know, make sure, first of all, they make sure you're okay, that you didn't respond up to, you know, to help another county, which we do quite often. We, we wouldn't often go to Sterling, which is where the tragedy happened, but we, we go pretty close and, and we run mutual aid up there quite often. And then, you know, I had to reach out to, to two of my former guests, Matt Hartman and Charlie Collins. Both are Loudoun County firefighters, and I just needed to make sure that they were okay, and and, and they were. They, Charlie was in the studio recording at the time, and and Matt wasn't on the fire, so that the, both those guys were fine, and I was happy to hear that. It was a weird, it was a weird thing for me to hear, you know, that night when when I first started hearing that something was going on in Loudoun, and and it could be as as bad as we thought. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, not that one death isn't bad, but multiple deaths, of course, would have been so much worse. And I feel for the family and loved ones of the firefighter lost in Loudon this past weekend. And in a weird way, my, my brain automatically went to, well, shit, what happens when I step away? What happens if a shift after or a week after or a month after that tragedy strikes and it's my crew? my crew that I just left. And I had this overwhelming sense of, of guilt and pain that uh, I was, I don't, it's hard to explain. And I had to kind of balance it out. I reached out to a few people, a few of my trusted quote unquote advisors. And they, had, they all had the same thing to say, listen, everyone makes a decision to step out. It's just when and, and how, and, and everyone kind of has to deal with that thought of, Am I letting people down? And then I have to still balance it out with, okay, yes, I am stepping aside. I am, I am calling it quits, so to speak, but I think I'm doing it for the right reasons. And, and I think I've explained it before. It's, it's just time for me to go. It's my body. I'm, 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 I'm not performing the way I want to perform the standard I set for myself. And I think that I go back to what James Gearing told me two years ago. It's a force multiplier. You know, I can get up at two thirty in the morning and, and help an eighty-five-year-old man or woman off the floor and, and get them to bed and 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 know that I've affected change on a on a micro level, or I can expand what I'm doing here and continue to make change and push for change on a on a macro level. And it's that macro level I'm looking at. Everything in the fire service and the first responder world moves at glacial speed, especially change. And I think I can affect more change from, from a position outside of it. And not that I'm leaving the community. I, you know, we talked about that last time. I'm not leaving the community. I'm changing my focus in the community a bit, 
but I'm not leaving the community. But I won't be as constrained. I can be a little more vocal, believe it or not. Um, and so I, I balance it out that way when I start having these thoughts of what happens if that tragedy strikes my crew or my department and the people I know and love. I heard from a former guest, and, and I'm not going to say his name because it, it, it doesn't need to be put out there, but he touched base with me and he apologized. He said, I wasn't completely truthful. And he talked about his battle with alcohol and he had made it in his episode seem like it was something he had beaten, quote unquote. And he wanted to apologize because he hadn't. He was something he was still dealing with and, and, and he was happy to announce that he was just now coming to that point where he thinks he's got it beat and he's dealing with it and, and he's comfortable with that knowledge. And I, I reached back to him and I said, you can't beat yourself up for that. You know, we're not, none of us are perfect. We can't strive to be perfect. We can only be, strive to be better than we were the day before or a better version of ourselves from day to day. You know, that's such a common thing. You know, we hide our flaws. We hide our scars. We hide our, you know, our faults because we want to put a persona out there that, that we think people want to see. But that's not real. You know, it's not, it's not attainable. I mean, I'll speak from my own point of view. You know, I, I, I talk a huge game about getting mental health and you know, getting help and getting therapy and, 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 you know, buckling down and, and doing the things you need to do to, to better yourself. And, and I fall off that wagon as much or more than anybody. And for it's, there's this weird thing that I feel like I have to live up to, you know, I adhere to everything I say. Well, I don't. I'm, I'm, I've said it so many times before. I'm a flawed individual and my flaws continue. It's just me trying to be a better version of what I was yesterday. It's not easy. Um, I don't always achieve that goal. And, and we all stumble. I definitely stumble. It's wrapping my head around the fact that I can make a mistake and still recover, not having it ruin everything. I, um, I spent some time pondering life and what it's going to be like in the next couple of weeks when I step out of the fire service and and I keep hearing people go, oh man, I'm, I'm so happy for you. You got it all figured out. I don't have shit figured out. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I don't have it figured out. I am taking a leap of faith. I'm placing a massive bet on myself and I'm going to fucking hustle. I'm going to move. I'm going to put some shit together and I'm going to scratch and claw and build something. And I'm scared to death. I'll be very open and honest with you. I'm scared to death, but I also know I'm not coming back to this job. So this is what I'm doing. I'm going to strike out. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to be my own person and I'm going to make a go of this. And the, the failure will be all mine and the success will be mine. And those who help me, those who support me, those who cheer for me and those who jeer for me, because they're going to be the people out there that, that they're going to say, no, he's, he, he'll never make it. I want to hear those people as well. I want to, I want those people and I want my fans, quote unquote, to be the ones that motivate me, to drive me forward, to push me to do better, to push me to be a better person and to just be a better human in this world in general. 
and it goes back to my conversation with my guest. It's about being a better version of you than you were the day before. And that's what I'm going to strive for each day, putting a foot forward, you know, making the changes to be a better person, be more productive and catch that lucky break. You know, there's so many quotes out there about luck. I, I, I'm not going to go over all of them, but to paraphrase them, you know, luck is when hard work comes together with opportunity, right? So it's time to do some hard work and look for those opportunities. It's daunting. It's, it's nerve wracking. It's scary as fuck. And I'm here. I'm going to do it. I'm here for it, as they say. And uh, I'm also excited. So as you can tell, I got a lot of thoughts swirling around in this dome of mine. Um, more than normal, which is kind of scary. Uh, and so I'd love to hear from everybody, you know, love to hear your thoughts on, on the show, the thoughts on life and the thoughts of where you are and where you want to be. Uh, you can reach out to me at any time and um, I welcome any and every conversation, any and every bit of advice, any and every bit of criticism. I'll listen to it and, and I'll work on it. That being said, welcome to episode 106 of the things we all carry. Today's guest is Travis. Travis is a firefighter EMT out of Johnson County, Kansas. And he's been career firefighter for the last five years. He, um, he was a volunteer before that for about 18 months. And he's a father and a husband. He has two daughters, a 14-year-old and a three-year-old. And he is a peer support specialist for Johnson County as well. And that's kind of the focus of what he wanted to talk about on, on this episode. He goes in depth about his, his childhood, his high school years, kind of floundering before getting into the fire service and how he found the fire service and what worked for him. Um, he's very open about his battle with alcohol as a young, as a young teenager, actually, and, and as a young adult. He talks about some traumatic moments in, in his career and, and how they spurred him and his department on to, to finding a way to try to solve some of the some of those mental health issues that you deal with following a traumatic call. And that's where the, the peer support specialist came from for him is he, he wanted to take an active part in being part of that solution. And he stepped up, he raised his hand and he said, Hey, let me help. And now he is, he's not only doing it for Johnson County, he's doing it for other jurisdictions. He, he goes out and he interacts with, with people when traumatic events happen elsewhere. And you know, that's what we need. We need doers. And he's a doer. And this conversation was, uh, it was a good one. I enjoyed this conversation. He, uh, he, he's open, he's honest, and uh, he just wants to, to get the message out there. He wants to help, and he wants to help improve outcomes for, for people, not only in his department, but outside of his department. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I would love to hear your feedback. You can reach me anywhere on all the, any of these social platforms. And, you know, Instagram is probably the easiest or TikTok. Uh, just look for at all at the things we all carry. I can't even get the address right today. At the things we all carry on both Instagram and TikTok. Reach out to me. Let me know what you think. And uh, let's continue this conversation. You guys get out there. Do something for yourselves today. A quick reminder, though, please 
Help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy this show. All right. Gotcha. Well, let me see if I can destroy an introduction for you, and then we'll just have this conversation. <laughs> cool. All right. So welcome back to the things we all carry. Today I have Travis joining me. Travis is out of Johnson County, Kansas. He's a firefighter EMT. He's been career for the last five years, and he spent about 18 months, correct? Travis is a volunteer? Correct. Yeah, about a year and a half. One of the things, two things he wanted me to point out was he's kind of most proud of. First of all, he's married with two daughters, a 14-year-old and a three-year-old. And he's also a member uh, and a peer support specialist for Johnson County. And that's, he wants to kind of get that message out a bit today and describe, or kind of define and describe what that role is and, and how we should build and expand upon that in the fire service as a whole. So good morning, Travis. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Man, thanks for joining me. I know that, I know that it's cold, so it's cold out there in Kansas right now. You guys have a snap, and, and we were talking a little bit before we came on air about how wide and varied Kansas weather is, and, and you're, you've got the winter side of it right now, and it, it gets frigid, and the wind just blows through Kansas. So I'm, it, it, it comes, and when it comes, it hits hard, and yeah. then it goes away, and you might have 60-degree weather, and then it comes back. <laughs> yeah, and so you're, you're, you're happy to be inside, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Yeah. Days off, uh, hiding inside, eating a bowl of chili are pretty nice right now. Um, what was the last song you heard, bud? So, um, I can't remember specifically which song it was. I know it was on my workout playlist by Breaking Benjamin. Um, I got a Spotify playlist with just a, I got a chill playlist and then a workout playlist. Um, and I think the last one that came on was a Breaking Benjamin song when I was working out. But typically when I'm working out, if, if I can understand the words of the song i'm not working out hard enough so i know it was breaking benjamin but i don't remember exactly which song i'll take it i'll take it that 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 works for me yeah um i think you just need it loud and angry huh in, in the gym something with with a high tempo and loud bass will get me going there yeah. you go it would tell me a little bit about your upbringing where where'd you grow up what was family life like for you or in those early years yeah um I had a great upbringing, great family. Um, uh, I was born just outside of uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, but didn't didn't live there very long. Don't remember it. Um, we my dad worked for Kraft Foods. Uh, he was in sales, so he kind of moved around a couple times when I was young. We left New Orleans and moved to the Kansas City area. Lived here for a very short amount of time. Then we moved down to uh, Oklahoma City Metro. We lived in Edmond, Oklahoma, just about probably ten or fifteen miles north of Oklahoma City. And I spent most of my childhood upbringing there uh, until about the age of 14. Um, had a younger sister and an older brother. I was like, I am the quintessential middle child. Um, constantly in competition with the older brother who was a really great athlete. And then constantly kind of compared to the younger sister who was the dancer, uh, honor roll student. Just I, I was the perpetual middle child. Um, but family life was great. Had two parents you know, that stayed together and were an extremely strong uh, parental unit my entire life. Um, uh, mother was very, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, um, very active in the church, very supportive. Uh, my whole life, I was told, you know, stories of you're going to be something great and, you know, read miracle stories and just really kind of um, tried to foster that you're, you're bigger than yourself mentality in me. Um, 
down where I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, wrestling, uh, wrestling and football were kind of the two big sports there. Um, so started wrestling. My brother was a very prominent wrestler down there, ended up going to the university. So our family name was pretty well known in the wrestling community there. Was it, um, which which think, school? Uh, university of Oklahoma? Uh, Central Oklahoma. Central, so okay. it was actually the Division Two school right there in the town that we and, grew up in. Yes, Central okay. Oklahoma, right in Edmond. Wrestling is is so tough in that area. It, I mean, that's that's one of those. It's it's one of those it, sports it is, that really thrives in the Midwest. It, it's hard to describe um, what it's like growing up in those types of communities, but it is. Uh, you know, I heard someone say one time, they're like, there's one place I'll never get in a bar fight and that's Oklahoma. Cause you don't know who, you don't know who you're, who you're pissing off. You don't know yeah. what that guy's done. You know, he's either a farmer or a, a division one wrestler. Yeah. You better look uh, at the so ears. Yeah, growing first. up in that, it, yeah, exactly. Check for the cauliflower. <laughs> um, so I think growing up in that, uh, a lot of, uh, type a ego, uh, high driven, uh, people I was surrounded by, uh, very goal driven individuals, um, I also, uh, I think though, there was always that competition between me and my brother coaches, the, the coaches who had coached my brother were also coaching me at a young age. And so I was kind of compared like, oh, you're going to be better than your brother. You'll be better than your brother, man. You stick with this. You'll be better than your brother. And, uh, that internal conflict, I didn't realize until later on in life, like that really played a, a, a mental game on me of like, how can you compare me to one of my role models? You know, like you're comparing me to someone I look up to. Right. Um, so during that phase, I think I kind of started to rebel. Um, I was probably around nine or 10 and shunned away from wrestling and basically like all group sports, all organized sports and started skateboarding. And, um, prior on the age of like 10 or 11 really dove into skateboarding. And I, I think that something that stuck out to me was like the skill acquisition part of it. You know, anybody can hop on a board and just coast forward, but to truly be able to like manipulate the board and do tricks and stuff, you had to really focus on the craft. And I think that that was the first thing in life where I truly got a taste for skill acquisition and, and having to truly grind something out. Um, around that same time, uh, a uh, pretty big event happened in Oklahoma city, uh, the Oklahoma city bombing. And, uh, we, we were there when it happened. Uh, like I said, we were probably as a crow flies, no more than 10 miles away from the actual site. Um, I was very young and I think that my parents didn't really think that I would remember it. And later on in life, my mom asked me like, what do you remember? And I explained, you know, I remember sitting in my dad's office. I had my feet up on the, on the table watching cartoons and the whole table rattled and it actually kind of set my chair down. And I was like, what was that? And I walked into my mom's room cause she was a stay at home mom. And, uh, I was like, did you hear that? What just happened? And she was like, the, the neighbors had actually been teaching their son how to drive. So she was like, I bet that the neighbor ran through the garage door. I bet that's what <laughs> happened. And so we go outside and look and turned on the news and found out we had a bunch of uh, family friends who were like candy stripers, like kind of like volunteer nurses right. who started kind of notifying us what would, what had happened. Um, and I think um, that same thing, kind of looking back hindsight, you realize like there were some moments in your life that truly influenced you you that at the time you had absolutely no idea that they had any impact on you. Um, but that was a huge, huge moment. Um, not only in my life, but just kind of an American culture. Oh, definitely. Family, friends. And I think that anyone that lived around that area at the time probably had people affected. So you really got to see that, um, kind of 
post-traumatic event um, come together of the, of the local population. Um, we had a close friend that was an OSBI agent and his wife was a prosecutor that was involved in some of the cases. Mm -hmm. So seeing that, I think I, I didn't have any family that was military or first responder that I was aware of at that time. And so I think seeing that, it really showed me that patriotic level, that, that, that selflessness and, and devotion to a cause greater than self. That was kind of my first uh, view of that. Um, so I think from a young age, I kind of had that patriotism and that drive of, of selflessness and wanting to be of service. Um, but the fire service never really was on my radar. Um, I was always kind of wanted to be like a special agent, a Navy SEAL, something right. real tactical that carried a gun, real cool, tough guy stuff that nobody else wanted to do. Um, I kept, you know, my teen years were filled with skateboarding. I was running around the streets of Oklahoma with, you know, group of like five buddies filming skate videos, um, going out at nights, carrying lights, hooking up generators and filming parts, hacking off rails and skating rails. I mean, just doing stuff that society probably thought we were a bunch of punks, but truly we had the best intentions of just trying to be as creative as we could and, you know, having fun. Um, uh, I think to everyone else, they probably thought Travis is going down a bad path. He's hanging out with a bunch of punks, but, but truly at that time we were, as straight edge as it could get. We were just rolling around on skateboards causing mayhem, really. Um, uh, was really close with those guys, had a separate group of friends at the school that I went to. Um, and then it was when I was 14, uh, my dad got noticed that he was kind of being transferred again through his job. So we were going to be moving back to Kansas City. Um, and at that age, right, like it was a few months before going into high school, I was 14, halfway through my eighth grade semester. So, I mean, I've always been a pretty charismatic guy. I could always make friends, but like at that point in life, it was pretty overwhelming to be like, you're going to start over. You're going to another school, another city, another state, and you got to figure this out. So it's a terrible, uh, age literally to do that's kind of how it happened. They told me, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately my dad had moved around a lot as a kid mm -hmm. and he had always promised us. He was like, I'm never going to move you in high school. I'll never move you in high school. I had to move in high school. It was, it was terrible. Um, so he, he gave me about four months, uh, you know, before high school. So he kept his promise, but he, he got pretty close to riding it. Um, but you know, I get it. It was job calls and says, Hey, uh, you've got to move. He didn't really have an option. And I know that it beat him up to, to do that at that time, but it just kind of had to be done. Um, so moved here. Uh, first place I went to immediately was the skate park, uh, the local skate park figured I could make some friends and, um, get a crew and, and, and feel a little bit of companionship. So right off the bat, met a couple kids that went to the local school that I was going to, got to know them really well. Um, got involved with a lot of, you know, people around here started making friends pretty quickly. Like my parents were actually surprised at how soon I had started making friends. Um, you know, going into high school, um, I was, you know, it was, I'd only been here four months in this city. And I think it kind of put me in this weird place where going into high school, people thought I'd been, I'd been here for a long time, right? People from other schools just assumed this, this kid's blended in. He, uh, you know, he, he's a part of this. Right. So I kind of had a target on my back. Um, you know, I was this new skater kid who maybe I was dating some of the girls that the varsity football players were dating or, you know, things like that. I just kind of got a target put on my back. So um, started hanging out with guys and in my high school, I, I tried to relate this to my parents and certain people. There weren't, there wasn't a druggy class and there wasn't like the popular kids. Uh, if you went to a house party on Friday night, you saw the varsity 
quarterback. You saw the valedictorian. You saw everyone. They were all there doing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you went out, you went out and you, you partied. Um, so I got involved with some people who, who were going out and I think sort of going down that path and really just trying to hold on to some friends, just, you know, just trying to fit in. And it does seem sometimes like the, the people that are the most accepting are the ones that are doing things that they probably shouldn't, right? Like, um, everybody wants, wants a group to go out and do some stuff. So it makes you feel a little bit better when everyone's doing bad stuff, makes yeah. you feel less guilty. Um, but it was, I, I, we were totally young, just young kids going out drinking on Friday nights at houses. It was nothing more than just probably what's happening at every high school. Um, throughout the years of high school, though, I kind of excelled, you know, you see that kind of, uh, that tier system, people that are going to take it a little excessive, start to go a little excessive. And we could see that happening. Um, I wrestled two years in high school, but, uh, I was, I was definitely a, um, athlete, not a student, and I could never keep my grades up. So I think both years that I wrestled, I ended up, my father made me tell the coach, Hey, grades aren't cutting it. I got to stop. That was kind of a bummer. Um, but through wrestling, I met some really good guys and, um, Again, like these guys weren't druggies. They were 4.0 GPA state placers in wrestling tournaments. And I think a lot of what happened was um, injuries happened on the wrestling mat. Of course. These guys would have tweaked backs, tweaked shoulders. And God forbid, the last thing you're going to do is tell them they can't compete in a tournament that's going to place them on yeah. a podium. Um, so they'd go out and they'd get prescribed to a pain pill or something, try to numb it out so they could keep going. Um, and in in the short term, I think it probably worked for what they were trying to accomplish, right? It numbed out the pain and they, they were able to complete the season. But at the end of the season, they were left with, with a pretty wicked addiction. Right. Um, started out as a lot of Oxycontin. Um, I remember there was a song that came out. I had never heard of Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. And this little white rap song comes out called Oxycontin. And the next thing I know, kids are all over it. Um, finding it in their parents, you know, pill cabinets and... I remember one of my buddies just like flat out, like first time he ever took it, just overdose, went unconscious, mom found him. And we we're like, what is this stuff? You know? And, um, it seemed like opiates, this was 2006, 2007. And where I lived, opiates kind of just took over. Um, they, they came in by storm and it was yeah. a lot of young kids, uh, in affluent neighborhoods. This was not like inner cities or like bad areas. This was million dollar homes where they were running, you know, drug overdoses. And, um, the first one was that in our town, um, that the police kind of were aware of that was a confirmed heroin overdose was one of my good buddies, Brett, who was on our wrestling team. Um, and a lot of the officers that I've kind of gathered after the fact working in this field, um, even said they didn't even know what it was when they came across it. They found an unconscious guy and were like, what, what has happened here? Right. And that kind of opened up Pandora's box after that. And they started to kind of come to the realization, I think we got a little problem here. Um, but the school district and the community um, of Johnson County, very affluent. Kind of like you mentioned Loudoun County. I think that's kind of how people probably around here view Johnson County. There's a, a certain prestige that comes along with having a certain zip code attached to your name here. Yep. Um, and they, they really fought to keep this hidden. Um, there was an all out pandemic of, of opiate abuse going on in in the schools. I mean, I have, I, in high school, I found people passed out with needles in bathrooms, you know, I mean, and this is a blue ribbon school of excellence is what they call it, you know? Um, so I, I think, um, I've always been loyal, what I would consider loyal to a downfall. Um, these were my friends. Like, yes, I understood that what they were doing was bad. 
but someone needed to be there with them, right? Like, right. and that was kind of, it kind of became my mantra. Like no one dies on my watch. As pathetic as that is to say at the age of 16, 17 and 18, that was something that I would say it like, no one's going to die on my watch, you know? Um, so we didn't grasp the seriousness of, of truly what was going on. I looked at a lot of things like we went out and I, I did things socially. I'd go out, I'd get real drunk. You know, I, I think Adderall was going on. I was prescribed to Adderall, just doing stuff just to go out and keep the party going. But these guys, when I started seeing them like shutting off, staying in the house and, and just getting doped up on Oxycontins and, and nodding off, I was like, guys, this is, a, this is a pretty serious problem we've got here. Um, and the, the, the grips, seeing the grips of actual what true addiction was doing to these guys was, was pretty bad. Um, so after Brett passed away, I, I kind of, I was kind of like, all right, man, like if, if death is involved, this is getting too serious. So I kind of split off. I started dating a girl and kind of started trying to create a new, a new path. Um, unfortunately that new path involved a lot of drinking. Um, the girl that I got involved with, we had a very toxic relationship. Um, she, we actually have my 14 year old daughter. She's the mother of her. Now our relationship is great. Uh, you know, very copacetic and try to keep things in line for our child. But I think that we would both agree at the time um, we were young and dumb and just uh, wanted to have fun. And so I got involved with her and um, she lived in a different city. At the time, I had never been in any trouble, no run-ins with the police other than a punk skater getting kicked out of a spot and having my parents called. Um, and so I was uh, going over to her house in, this, in the same county, but in a different city. And I think that within like three months in one summer, I had had like four run-ins with the police. Like, right. I mean, like, to the point where it was like, they were like, who the hell is this guy? And why does he keep showing up in this three block radius running into the police? And it was right by her house. It was a, a very wealthy house. Her father owned a bunch of scrap yards in the city. Um, it, it, I think that I just wanted that lifestyle. I grew up very middle-class. I was, you know, my parents didn't spoil me. Um, and I saw this ticket to get involved with this affluent family that I thought I could have whatever I wanted and just kind of have parties and just enjoy yeah. my life. Um, People warned me, my parents warned me, but um, way too stubborn. And that was exactly what I wanted. And looking back, it's probably, I, I, I need, a, I learned from pain. And I think I went through a lot of pain through that relationship, um, a lot of heartache and a lot of, of realization that, you know, this stuff hurts and it kind of showed me what I want in life and what I want in a spouse. Um, so I kept getting in trouble. And basically the city, um, I think that it, it was probably a good hearted prosecutor or whoever was in charge saw these, this stuff come across the desk and was like, we got no history of this guy ever having any, any problems. He's 18 years old, new relationship, you know, where they had access to all my Facebook and they were kind of seeing how we were talking and they were like, yeah, there's a little more to this. Let's, let's kind of look into this. So a good hearted prosecutor was like, I don't think we need to punish you. I think we need to help rehabilitate you. Um, so they, they gave me some charges and said, Hey man, I, I didn't have the money to fight. You know, I, I, and that was, Kind of my first introduction to the court system where I realized money helps a lot. Like, you know, if you've got money, you can probably get out of this. If you don't, you're probably just going to have to, to get what they give you. Yeah. Money helps um, a lot. So that, that was what I did. Yep. I, I basically just said, uh, I'll take it on the chin. And they said, uh, yeah, we understand you don't have the money to fight this, but go through this. And if you don't get in trouble again, we'll expunge all this off your record and act like this. No, none of this ever happened. And the way they said it, I could tell they were kind of like, if you, if you can, you know, like nobody expected me to button up and, and, and square up and, and, and get through this. So I had like a, 
I think it was like 18 months probation. I had to, you know, put a DUI interlock in my car, like had to do all, all the rigmarole and even not going to court and trying to avoid all those fees for the next two years, all I was hit with ma- mandatory fees. I mean, I was living with my parents in their basement. I mean, I had no money. It was, I, I was a loser at this point. Like, you know, I was trying to meet girls on Tinder and blowing in an inter- interlock and take them out on a date <laughs> to start my car. Um, so just, just felt like a loser, but was still, um, at this point, you know, I'd been in trouble as on probation and I was trying to stay clean. Um, but I turned 21. Um, I had been going to AA meetings. I got a year of sobriety. I was like, man, I had all this trouble. Every time I've ever been in trouble, I was drunk. Probably the alcohol. That's probably the problem. So I decided to get sober, got sober for a year, turned 21 and was like, why the hell would I be sober? I can go to the bar and drink now. Like yeah. it's, I'm, I'm allowed to, um, so had some buddies that had, you know, they were turning 21 too. So jumped right back into the scene and, um, it went from, you know, being a kid in high school, going to house parties to now it was going to the bar and it opened up this whole new world to me of like, this is a lifestyle. Like this is, you know, people are doing this every night. I got, you know, it's like cheers, man. The local bar, when I walked in, they had a shot ready for me. Um, but again, this was normal, right? This was what me and my buddies did. So going out and drinking 12 to 15 beers and having a bar chat of 80 to a hundred dollars was not uncommon, right? That, that totally was normal. Um, and it, to me, it was normal. That was how we drank. We'd go down to the universities. Um, none of us were in school, but we would go down to the universities and party with the guys that were down there. Um, and, and we had a really good crew, a really group of core tight guys. When we'd go out, there was like 10 of us that were just very close, all hung out at the same apartment. And, um, one of my best buddies, uh, he was an identical twin, David, David Petrie. He had wrestled with us. We were, I mean, super close to the point where his identical twin literally would say, you are closer to David than I am. Like when, when he gets wild, we need you to ring him back down and, uh, super close. I mean, we were, you know, 21, 22 years old. And I'd be like, Hey man, after the bar, you want to come, come crash in my parents' basement. And he, he could literally come over and we'd have a sleep over my parents' basement, stay up watching movies. I mean, we just, we, we were that close. We, like literally when he would leave, I'd be like, Hey, I love you, man. I love you. You know, just kind of had that bond that, that no one really understood and people kind of made fun of, but we just had that bond. And, uh, David was a very excessive person. Like if he was going to drink, he was going to drink. If he told you he was going to do something, he was going to do something. Um, he, in wrestling, there was a, we had a really stud wrestler in our high school who had set a bunch of records before we went there. And just to kind of show you the type of person David was, he sees this guy's record first year he'd ever wrestled. And he says, I'm going to beat that guy's takedown record. They're like, David, that guy went undefeated. Like, there's no way you're going to beat that guy's record. Right. Years later, later that guy, Zach Roberson, had to fly down to a tournament and actually award David something because he ended up beating his <laughs> takedown record. Like, that's just how he was. He had that mindset. Right. And so, uh, David, uh, just a very excessive person. That's all I, that's all I can say. And, uh, so he, he got into some, uh, some of the pain pills and started diving into that. And one time, uh, we'd been down at a party out at KU, uh, one of our buddies, their, their birthday was on new year's Eve. So they was through a huge party. So we went out there and somehow throughout the night, we all kind of got split up and went our own ways, which was totally typical. And, uh, I ended up back in my house. I got a, I caught a ride real early in the morning, ended up back in my house and I was sleeping. And I remember like eight o'clock in the morning, I got a call from, um, a buddy who, we all used to be really good friends with his dad was a big time attorney. He was a very strict kid, um, real good dude. And then he kind of went down the path and he was more of the one pushing a lot of the opiates. He was selling it, really getting a lot of people addicted. And so we kind of wrote him off. Um, 
I got a call from this kid at like eight o'clock in the morning. And he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm asleep in my bed. He's like, I need you to come to my house now. Um, David, David's in trouble. He overdosed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And at this time, like I said, like I had drank the night before I had an interlock system in my car. So I knew when my car would start. And uh, so I run upstairs and I'm like, dad, you need to take me to this house. What are you talking about? I'm like, you need to take me to this house right now. He takes me to my buddy's house. I go inside and it's, it's a million dollar mansion. And I go into the basement and um, I had no idea. I'd never truly seen someone like overdose. And I walk into the basement and Zach is kind of standing in this area where the, the TV is with two couches. And he's pointing at the couch, a little love seat. And David's laying on there, arm folded over the, the side of it. He's got foam coming out of his mouth, completely purple around the mouth. And I'm kind of standing there staring at him. And I'm like, what, what the fuck did he take? And he goes, I, I gave him methadone. He didn't know how much to take. So he just drank it all. And, um, so I'm sitting there looking at him like, this is bad. We got to fucking do something. Call 911. Well, the kid's dad, like I said, was a, a real big time attorney in the County. And he was like, we can't call 911. This can't happen in my house. And I'm like, you fucking piece of shit. So I literally bend down and I, I pick David up. I grab his arm and I throw him over my shoulder and we run out of the basement up these stairs. Um, and he's trying to kind of make excuses as we're going up. And I'm just, I, I literally I turn, I was like, shut the fuck up. But we keep running outstairs and, or outside and pass through. His dad never saw us. And we get to his little Mazda RX-7, small little car. Yeah. And I throw David in the back of it. And I say, drive to the hospital and don't stop for anybody. And uh, so there was, uh, St. Luke South was probably 10 minutes from his house. We made it there in a few minutes. We opened up the doors of the car and there was a nurse wheeling out a lady who was in a wheelchair and just given birth. She's wheeling her out of the front of the hospital and she sees me grab David and he's completely limp and just flopped over. And she's like, oh my God, is he drunk? And I was like, no, he, he overdosed. I was like, you need to go get somebody. And so I don't know what she did, but she turned around and must've hit a button, like the code, the code button or something. But a group of people came out um, and that was the first time I ever saw people like work with a purpose. I mean, these people were, were at it. Like just, they threw him on a cot, wheeled him in the back and like stuff was just happening. And I remember standing there, Zach, the kid whose house was at, he's like, I'm leaving. And so he leaves and I'm stuck at the hospital waiting room with David and just kind of waiting outside, like wondering what the hell is going to happen. So the nurses come out and they're like, Hey, he's, he's not doing very good. Like he was, he was very close. I was like, well, I want to talk to the doctor. And so the doctor comes out and I'm like, how much, like, how close was he to, like, how much time did he have left? Uh, you know, Cause I've heard that in movies, like how much time? And the doctor was like, I don't, I don't think you grasped the situation. Like your buddy was dying. And I was like, well, no, he was making these really weird noises. Like it sounded like a fish out of water. What I now re realize is diagonal respirations, but he, I mean, he was guppy breathing hard. So I described all that and they hit him with Narcan and they ended up getting him back that time. I had to call his identical bro twin brother and let him know, Hey, I'm at the hospital. David overdosed, had to call his mom, tell her to come up. Um, horrible situation. Yeah. So he ends up turning around. We get him back. He's, he's, he's good. And, um, he was very scared after that to, to try any sort of, of opiate after that. Um, but like most people, he found something else to replace it with. Right. So opiates are bad. I'll just start drinking alcohol. That's good. Right. So he started drinking a lot. Um, and again, excessive person, he's not just going to have a couple and, and be good. He started drinking a lot. Um, and I think he realized too, that that was a problem. So he was trying to get sober, trying to do all these things. Um, and the last time I ever saw him, uh, me and my, my current wife, we were dating at the time and we went to a local bar that had like a beer pong night. 
and he showed up. He wasn't drinking, just wanted to go out and be social with people. And um, I, I knew that he had been trying to get sober. And I'll never forget the last thing that I ever told him was, I'm proud of you and I love you. Um, and then the next day, I woke up and I had a missed call from him at like three o'clock in the morning. Mm. I was like, that's odd. And kind of just, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, yeah, he's probably just trying to call and see what was up. Not a big deal. Later on that day, I got a call from Adam, his brother, his identical brother. And he was like, uh, Hey, I, I thought that you should be the first to know, uh, we lost David today. Mm. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? And so I call him. And uh, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was like, David, David was found in his vehicle today in a Walmart parking lot. Um, they found a video. Someone walked up, gave him something, walked into Walmart, came back out and found him and slumped a hat over his face and walked off. So basically what had happened was someone sold him some stuff, walked inside, came back out and found him, realized he had overdosed. They were literally, a, I mean, a stone's throw away from an emergency room, a full-fledged level, you know, level one emergency room was around the corner and he died in a Walmart parking lot. Um, someone just left him. And so that right there turned my world upside down. I had, I have a, you know, I had a few friends or acquaintances that I'd known that had passed away. Brett was the first one. I was very close with him. Um, knew some people who had passed away. Same thing. I had a long list of people in my phone of, you know, not close, close friends, but but people that I knew, but David was like, we were brothers. I mean, it, it rocked my fucking world. And, um, it threw me into this funk where I was like, my God, like, I've got to get away from this, but I care about these people, but I got to get away from this. And, uh, so I, I was dating a girl at the time and things weren't very good with me and her either. And she could tell that I was trying to like get out and go do something better. I was like, there's something better out here for me. This is not it. Um, I got a job. I worked in transportation. I was working for a Fortune 500 company, uh, freight quote, selling, you know, being a freight broker and just selling transportation loads. And um, I broke up with the girl that I was dating. I was like, I'm going to get my head straight. And um, I started, I was working and met my current wife. Um, I was kind of managing the store and she came in underneath. Her parents had been members of the store. So Met her on good terms. Um, we kind of hit it off immediately. Her family owned a CrossFit gym, very into fitness, very squared away, straight edge family, like super motivated. Started hanging out with her and kind of started getting my life together and started seeing like, hey man, like there's other avenues out here. Like I don't need to just consistently hang out and do this crap. Like there's, there's positive people out there that I can get involved in, hang with winners and you might become a winner. So started hanging out with her and her family. Um, really started getting motivated, started getting healthy. I mean, I was a, a scrawny piece of crap coming out of high school. I think I weighed 135 or 140 pounds. <laughs> started, started getting in there, lifting weights and they put some weight on some, some weight on me, started getting me healthy. Um, and then kind of like, I was on this kick of like, man, like I can take on the world. Like I'm, I'm I got rid of a lot of those, that, that dead weight, the, the, the bad stuff that was going on in my life. Like what's next? You know, like I, I still had that feeling like when I was a kid where I was like, Something out there is better than me, and I want to be a part of it. I, uh, I was stuck in the corporate grind and absolutely hated it. I was great on how many phone calls I made per day. I had to sit in front of two computer screens and just, just grind. That yeah. was it. There was no integrity involved in the job. Um, it was totally chase money, and that's it. And um, I, I've always been a reader, and I read a book um, called Resilience uh, by Eric Greitens, who uh, was the governor of Missouri for a little bit, but some stuff happened, and he's not anymore. But it's a great book, and it talked about um, there are people that are motivated by profit, and there are people that are motivated by purpose. 
And that struck a chord with me because I was like, the guy to my left at work is just grinding for dollar bills. The guy to my right is grinding for dollar bills. And I'm like, I'll do it. But like, I'm more the guy my boss knew, like if there's a shitty, shitty load that no one can cover, give it to Travis because he'll work until the end to get it covered because it's, it's the objective. He wants to finish the objective. It's not after the money. And so I really realized like, maybe, maybe this, this chasing money is not for me, you know? And so I kind of had this little seed planted where there's, there's something out there. I just don't know what it is. And I was sitting in my parents' house with my, my wife, my current wife was my girlfriend at the time. And something came on the TV and it was like a fire, a firefighter show, rescue me or something came on and it just hit me. I was like, I could do that. I could absolutely do that. And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, I, I could do that. Like, you know, I, I want to be of service. I was like, the only thing I don't know is like with my past if I can get in, but I was like, I'm going to fucking try. Like, I was like, I won't know if I don't try. Um, so I started kind of talking to some people. And one of the things that everyone said was like, if you don't know someone in the service, you're not going to get on the service. If you don't have a connection, it's extremely difficult. And I realized that to be kind of true. Like I had no idea where to start. I didn't know what school to go to, what classes to take. Um, so I told my wife, I was like, I need to get in touch with a firefighter. I have no idea who to talk to. So since her family owned a CrossFit gym, there was a member of the gym who had said that they, uh, they knew a firefighter, uh, in the County that was pretty high up and, um, literally handed my wife a piece of paper with a name and a phone number on it. And I came home one day and my wife handed me the piece of paper and said, I got a number for a firefighter. Give him a call. I was <laughs> like, do you know this guy? She was like, nope. Somebody at the gym said, call him. He knows what he's talking about. Talk about cold uh, calling. So I called this dude straight up cold call. I mean, and, and what's funny is I'm at work making cold, cold calls, calls right. uh, for a freight quote. And I walk outside in the parking lot of my lunch break and call this guy make straight cold up cold call, call right. you know, walked out of cold calls. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I call him and I'm like, Hey man, you know, my name's Travis, uh, I live in Johnson County and I want to become a firefighter. And he's like, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, man, you're not the first person I've had this conversation with. Uh, most people find out what all it takes to go through and they don't actually end up finishing it. And I was like, well, uh, I'm working full-time right now. I was like, but I was like, I I'm not going to quit this. Let's, let's do this. Like I'm, I'm pretty motivated. All right. So here's what you got to do. It kind of lines out, you know, you got to go through the fire academy, got to go through your EMR, EMT, got to take all these classes. And I was like, all right, copy. Um, I'll talk to you in a few months whenever I'm enrolled. And he kind of chuckled. He's like, all right, well, we'll be hearing from you. Yeah. And he, a few he, months later, I called him back. He just assumed was he was like, never hey. going to hear from me. 100%. And, and I do believe that he had probably had that conversation multiple times and was just like, this guy, this guy's going to find out what he's got to do and be like, yeah, screw that. Um, but no, I, I called him back a few months later and I was like, Hey, um, I just finished the fire Academy. I'm, I'm enrolled in EMT now. Like what else do I have to do? And, um, that guy, I still, to this day, don't think I've ever shook hands with that guy, but he is a, uh, he's a local, he's a chief now down in, uh, Lawrence, Kansas, where KU is. Mm -hmm. And I still, to this day, will reach out to him. I've thanked him numerous times and I will reach out to him about questions I have in the service or just anything like that. Um, so that was kind of like the first, um, like leader I saw in the fire service, like a role model that was like, Hey, this guy went out of his way, had no idea who I was, you know, we're friends on Facebook, have a little connection, but like just for him to step out of his way and be like, let me introduce you on how to get into the fire service. I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, this is pretty cool. Like there are good people. There are good, good dudes in this line of work. It's refreshing to stumble upon those people when in any kind of walk of life, to be honest with you. It doesn't happen often. And, and that's something I've realized in our line of work, man. Like uh, I was talking to the FBI agent one time and I was like, it must be so cool to work with just a bunch of dedicated, motivated people. Like everyone's the same. And he kind of chuckled. He was like, you would think so, but yeah. it's not that way. Yeah. So I think just in every line of work, man, you got your guys that are there for a paycheck and some insurance. Yep. 
Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I, I knocked all that stuff out pretty quick. I was working full time. I'm going to classes at night. It was not easy. And honestly, most of the stress probably was bared by my wife. We were engaged at that time. And every night I'd come home, she would have a plate of food ready for me at 10 o'clock at night. And I'd eat dinner, study a little bit, go to bed, and then wake up at six or seven in the morning and go straight back to work and do the same thing over. So, um, I don't think that I could have done that. Uh, coming out of high school, you know, I, I had a, my child, my first daughter when I was 19 or 20. So I kind of was just forced straight into the work world. Um, and I, I don't think looking back the discipline that I had at the age that I did go back through the fire Academy and through EMT, um, I needed that level of discipline and that maturity at that time yeah. to get through that. You know, I was yep. working 40 hours a week in the corporate world and then I was going to school at night. There's absolutely no way I could have done that right. post high school immediately. It just, I, I wasn't ready for it. Um, but, but same thing. I think, you know, I found that purpose that I was looking for. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I want to be a part of this. Um, I want to be of service. I'm jumping in. And so just kind of stayed front side focused. I got a lot of, um, I had a lot of ups and downs. I was very stressed a lot. And my wife would kind of bring me in and be like, nope, this is what you're meant to do. You're going to do this. So, um, there's a local fire department who allowed volunteers, uh, here in Johnson County that I'd heard about during our fire Academy. And I started volunteering there. Um, they had a wildland program that they deployed people out across the country um, during wildland fire. So I was like, man, this is awesome. Like great <laughs> Avenue. Like that's something I'd like to get into. Um, started volunteering, really clicked with the guys. Um, I'd done some ride outs at other departments. And I think sometimes um, you get a feel like with the guys whenever you're there. Um, there's a couple other guys that were there in the same crew and they'd be like, you know, when do you, when do you just feel like you're a part of the crew? And I was like, I guess if you haven't felt it yet, that might be a sign, you know, I was like, I feel like I mesh with these guys pretty well. So I fit in pretty well. Um, after about 18 months, uh, they had a full-time spot open up. So they, they offered me a position and I came on full-time. Um, our department is kind of different. We, every station is completely staffed 24, 365, 24 hours a day. We use our volunteers kind of like as an auxiliary position. We'll throw them in on a truck, uh, let them take up an extra seat. And the goal is that the, they'll be in the pipeline to become a full-time firefighter soon. So I kind of went through that pipeline, um, got a hired on full-time and, um, everything was great, right? Like I, I'd attained my goal. I thought I was on top of the world. I should have no more problems, right? My, my, my fairy tale story had happened. And I think it's like magic. that's the thing that pisses me off in Hollywood, man, is they have these fairy tale stories. But they don't tell you like shit happens after that too, you know? Right. <laughs> so, um, Thought I was living the dream, but uh, now looking back, I clearly had entered a profession of trauma with a life of trauma coming into it and um, unmitigated trauma too. So I, I had never really developed any self-coping skills, any resilience tactics. I was very big on the phrase ignore and override. Like hmm. trauma won't affect your body if you don't let it. Just shut your eyes, head down, and just keep pushing forward, and it'll go away. Yeah, the whole and, the whole just why can't you just be stronger mentality. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mental toughness, man. Mm -hmm. You got to have mental toughness. Just keep pushing forward. Yep. And um, I, I, I mean, it worked for me for a long time until the the vessel that I had to hold that stress was exceeded by the level of stress, and then it just started kind of dumping out, right? Yes. And so that was kind of. Um, after my first two years, I was still drinking, um, a lot. And then COVID came around and I, I absolutely fucking hated it. How everyone blamed things on COVID. Oh, well, you didn't know COVID happened. And so that's why this is this way. Um, but during that whole shutdown, um, 
there was nothing to do. So, I mean, literally I'd get off work at eight o'clock in the morning, stop by the gas station, grab a six pack of pounders. And by the time I was in my garage, they were done. And, um, I was hiding in the garage, acting like I was working on stuff, mm. flaming beers. Uh, it, it was, I was drinking a lot and I was drinking by myself. And what I realized was I, I had maintained that same, um, drinking tolerance that I had going out with 12 of my buddies on a Friday night, putting in you know, 12 to 15 beers. Yeah. I was maintaining that same level of drinking at home with my wife upstairs. Um, and to me, I, I think I was still trying to tell myself, this is normal. This is what all your buddies, this is how you drink. This is what you do. Um, we were trying to get pregnant uh, after we got married and we ended up, my wife got pregnant. And so um, I didn't want to admit that, that I was stressed out from the pregnancy, right? I'd already had a daughter. I was like, I got this. I'm squared away. I'm not stressed at all. I was drinking a lot. Like it really amped up during that, that, um, that pregnancy uh, phase. And my wife started to tell, um, she was getting frustrated. There was a lot of issues going on. And I, uh, I think I, there was one night I was out at a bar and some guy, random guy was like, man, why are you drinking that way? And one of my buddies was like, well, his wife's pregnant. And he was like, what? You should be at home with your watch. Like, why are you out drinking like this? And I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm just celebrating. You know, this is the last time. And he was like, no, nah, man, you're scared. He was like, you're really scared. And you're drowning all of this in liquor, trying to, trying to numb your emotions. And, uh, I got pissed. Like, I'm like this random dude at a bar, you're going to call me out like this. But the truth of it was like, he nailed it on the head, man. Like I had a bunch of emotions, a bunch of fears, and I was just trying to drown them out yeah, and just ignore you and override. Yeah. And it wasn't working. It, yeah. I mean, it just, I, I was a ball of, of unmitigated emotions. And, um, so it came to a kind of a, a tipping point. Um, I was trying to hide it all the time. And actually I listened to a podcast. Uh, I was behind the shield and he had a guy on that explained his story. And that's why I'm so, so throw this and people explaining their stories because if I heard something in a podcast that helped me, if we keep talking, somebody else is going to hear something that's going to resonate. Yeah. But I heard a story and I reached out to that guy and I'm like, man, I want what you've got, but I don't know how to get it. And so kind of worked with him a lot and a lot of ups and downs, a lot of struggles. Um, but after my daughter was born, there was a moment where I was really drunk had told my wife I wasn't drinking. My wife was cleaning, cleaning the house. I was holding my, my brand, brand new newborn baby in my arms on the couch and I passed out and didn't know it. And I woke up to my wife standing over me screaming and I looked down and, um, luckily like she had kind of fallen out of my arms and flopped onto the padding of the couch, yeah. but she was completely flopped out. Um, and I remember just looking down, looking up, looking down, looking up and I was embarrassed. I was the most guilt ridden I've ever in an instant just to have that much guilt and shame all over you. Um, it was, it was pretty eye opening, And I was like, Oh yeah, like this is bad. Like, this is really bad. Like I'm supposed to protect this child and here I am endangering her. Like I, I'm the problem. Right. And that's kind of what my wife had started saying is like, I'm in fear of what, of you, I don't ever think you're going to hurt my child, but you, I can't count on you. Like I don't trust right. you. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty eye opening, man. And, and I think too, for people in our line of work, for someone to tell you, I don't count on you. It's right. like, what? Like the public count, I, I, I'm a countable person, man. Like that's, that's my job. Um, but she was right. You know, she saw me when the, when the bunker gear got hung up and I came home, she saw me when that shield was down and she was like, something, something's not right. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll remove the alcohol and everything will be fine. Right. So worked real hard, got sober, um, December 10th of three years ago was the first day and I haven't changed. Um, 
But I think, again, I was like, everything should be fixed now, right? Like everything should go back to normal. And it just doesn't work that way. There was a lot of wreckage that mm -hmm. I had to, to deal with yeah. from the past and from the drinking that I'd done. Of course. So, um, like I said, this is during COVID. And so I got sober. Um, I don't know about every other department, but during COVID, we weren't really that busy. Like if we called, people were calling 911 because they didn't want to go to the hospital. They didn't want to be infected. So if they called 911, typically Johnson County EMS would go in fully suited up and we would kind of wait out in the truck. If they needed help, they'd call us in. It wasn't a lot of hands-on work. So um, right after that, the station that I was at um, is the busier station in our department, but countywide, definitely not like a super busy station. I mean, we're not getting slammed by any means, but we're, we're a consistent station. Right after COVID, something happened and people just started dying. Um, I mean, it was, it was very apparent that something took place and that there was a lot of death within our, our geographic region. And so, um, me and my captain at the time kind of started to take note of it. And there was 13 codes in 13 weeks that we ran back to back. Mm -hmm. And the, I know there are some people out there in the department who are like, I, that's, that's a normal week for us. But I can tell you that in my department, that is not normal at all. And even talking to people that run EMS in our entire county, they were like, that is not normal at all. We don't see that. Um, so 13 weeks of a code each week in a row and sometimes multiples, we got used to it, right? Like our code game was awesome. We were, we were running codes very well, doing yeah. a very good job, not always positive outcomes, but as far as the, the fluidity of working the code, we had it down. Um, that all kind of came to a head on the 13th one. Um, it was seven, it was seven fifty eight in the morning, right? At shift change. We were arguing with the guys. Uh, coming off the shift because they said that we were stealing food out of their pantry, right? Just <laughs> typical firehouse antics. That's how the shift starts. Yep. You guys were stealing peanut butter out of our pantry. We know it was you. Um, the tones drop and uh, we were like, hey man, we'll take it. Don't worry. Clear your stuff out. We got this. You guys go home. On the way to the call, I'm sitting back seat and I knew the medic that had responded first. He was on scene first. And um, he said that they had extricated one patient out of the back and it was a code blue in progress. I don't know about everyone else's policies and procedures, but in our county, we typically don't work codes that are trauma induced. Right. Just quality of life after it's just, it's just something that we don't typically do. Um, so when I heard that, um, knowing the paramedic, I immediately said out loud, it's a fucking kid. I know it's a fucking kid. And, um, cause I knew that he, for him to try to give effort, there would have to be cause and most likely it would be a child. Right. And we pulled up on scene. It was a, it was a four way stop. And a crew showed up kind of simultaneously as we did. So they ran across to the, uh, one of the impacted vehicles. It was a T-bone and it was a Ford Explorer. It was a mom driving her, her three girls to school. And, um, she had dropped a Gatorade bottle on the floorboard and reached over to try to pick it up. And when she did, she blasted through a stop sign and yeah. got T-boned. Yeah. And, um, it's just crazy. I'm sure you've seen it too. Um, I've, I've ran like semi trucks who have flipped and there's a small compartment and the guy somehow managed to get out and is sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette when you get there. Yeah. But this incident was a T-bone that looked like, you know, everyone should be out fine. And, and we pull up and it was just chaos. I mean, it was total chaos. So I run up, um, I'm trying to go to the impacted car cause that was where you could hear screams and there was a lot of chaos going on. But my captain was like, Nope, we need to work here. So it brings me up and there was a eight year old little girl laying in the middle of the street and uh, they were working, they were doing CPR on her. And so I walk up and I looked at the medic and I'm like, where do you need me? What do you need me to do? And he was kind of flipping through. I could, I could see that he was frantic. He was flipping through his cards, um, his, his note cards of, you know, running through codes. 
And he was like, I, I don't think this is good, but I, I don't feel comfortable calling it until we've got pads on and we can see a rhythm. Right. So we keep working it. We keep working it. Um, I'm on the chest and, um, it was, it was very weird. Uh, she, she looked pristine, no damage, just slight discoloration around the lips, which looking back, I was very glad that she wasn't suffering, that I had to like kind of see that suffering going on. I didn't have to deal with that. Um, they hooked the pads up. They realized there was, it was a shistily. She was, she was gone. And so he, he says, uh, there's a, a cop next to me and I was doing chest impressions. And he's like, all right, guys, if everyone, okay, we're going to go ahead and terminate efforts. And that was the first time I looked at the cop and I was like, I don't want to stop. I, I don't want to stop. Like, this is a kid. There's no way that this kid should not be alive. Right. Yeah. So they were kind of like, nope, like we're, we're going to stop. So he's like, go grab a tarp. So I went and grabbed the tarp, kind of placed the tarp over and kind of took kind of a second. I, I don't know, not say a prayer, but I just kind of took a moment to just be like, Hey, kind of regroup and regather because there was still an active incident going on. Right. Um, so as soon as that happened, I went over to the impacted vehicle and, um, actually, so before that, um, as I'm doing chest impressions, I hear a loud scream and I look up and the 12 year old sister, the older sister of the girl that I was doing chest impressions on had made her way out of the vehicle mm. and was running towards us screaming. Yeah, of course. And I look up and I see this yeah, realizing that um, that girl's old enough to probably realize what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, and so she full on saw it. Uh, another captain swooped out of the vehicle and kind of picked her bear hub, picked her up and was walking away from us. She's screaming and crying. I'll never forget that in my entire life. Like no. that whole him swooping her up and her seeing it. So they terminate efforts. I, I put the sheet over her and, um, I realized I'm like, okay, there's still an active scene going on. So I run over to the impacted car. Um, I immediately look in and I find the two-year-old daughter uh, in a car seat and she had vomited all over her chest, had vomit all over her chest and had a huge, um, I mean, literally the size of a goose egg on her forehead and looked obviously concussed, was very out of it. And I remember walking up and just being like, holy shit, this is horrible. Like in my head, I'm like, this is, she just keeps getting worse. Um, and so my buddy uh, walks up to me at this time that I was on the truck with. And he's like, Travis, these are girls. His wife owned a daycare. And he's like, this family is a daycare family. I watch these kids. So um, small town community, um, his family owns a daycare. They see a lot of the community. So he realizes that these girls in this family are, are kids that he watches at his daycare. So immediately Jesus. there's emotional attachments. Yeah. It's during COVID. We've all got masks on our face. These little girls are freaking out. So we kind of say, fuck protocol. And we start ripping off our masks, ripping off our stuff, trying to just be like, Hey, we're good guys. Like, you know, come on, we're here to help. Cause they were, they were freaking out. Yeah, they were. So we walk over and my captain, uh, rightfully so. I mean, it was, it was a very chaotic scene. And so another captain in the impact vehicle, he hands me a monitor and he's like, I need you to start getting vitals on everybody. And so the mom, they had her there. Well, the mom had realized this time that one of the daughters had been taken away and she didn't know what was going on with her. So prolonged incident. We're there for a while. Um, stepdad shows up who's a volunteer firefighter and the, the family, the mother used to be married to a Kansas highway patrolman. So Kansas highway patrolman here, one of their guys had in it. So we started getting highway troopers flooding the scene. Jesus. I mean, it was just, yeah, you just had nonstop people coming in everything. I mean, every emotional aspect that can be touched was getting right. touched. So we're over there talking to the mom, trying to kind of calm everything down. And she asked, I, I, or the, uh, the husband who was a volunteer firefighter said, I need a situation report on the middle child. What's going on? Right. And he looked at me and asked me and I, I just glazed over and I, I was just shaking my head. I 
I didn't know what to say, man. I was like, I, I have to. and luckily one of the medics kind of jumped in and he was like, we've tried everything we could, but we could not save her. I'm sorry. And the mom was sitting on the floor. Um, the passenger door had been cracked open and she was laying with her back in between kind of the V pattern between the door and the, and the, the bottom of the door. Right. And when she heard that, she let out this scream mm-hmm. that I will never forget. It was not a scream. It was a primal yell that I think every person there just felt something release, right? right. Like she, it, it was a very cathartic uh, moment for everyone. And I, I remember just kind of looking around after she let that scream out and all of the firefighters were just looking at each other with their jaws open, just like, holy shit. So mm-hmm. we end up getting all the kids into the ambulance. Um, the, the middle child ended up staying on the scene because it was, it was a loss of life. So they were going to do an investigation for the vehicle accident. And um, we get the scene wrapped up. We turn it over to PD. And um, we're all kind of sitting on the bumper of the fire truck. And I, you know, I'd smoked cigarettes and done dip in the past. And I remember I looked at one of the guys and I was like, can I get a pinch of your dip? Yeah. And it was like, I didn't know you dipped. And I was like, it seems like a good day to start. And, you know, that, that literally, I mean, it was just like, I had a tickle that I needed to itch and I didn't know what it was, but I just didn't feel right. So we're all kind of sitting there talking, we're like, you cool, you cool. Yeah, everyone. So we end up leaving, we pull out and I was facing backwards. And I remember leaving that scene and I was looking at the body bag there on the floor. Her family had all left and we're leaving the scene. And I'm like, God, like she's not, not going anywhere with her family. She's not going to the hospital. Like I just knew leaving that scene. I was like, this is different than, than any of the calls I've ever ran. This right. is different. Yeah. And, um, that call was what kind of initiated me and our department into peer support. Mm-hmm. Um, there was lots of authorities, lots of uh, the Johnson County Sheriff's department was on that call. Uh, the local police department was on that call, our fire department, um, a lot of people involved, a lot of people affected. So immediately after the, actually on the call, our chief said, Hey, we need to call and get a, a critical incident stress debriefing immediately. We need to have peer support come out and do a debriefing on this immediately. So, um, that was the first part, the first debriefing that I had been a part of. So immediately after they had us all report to a station and they did a hot wash, just kind of real quick. Here's what happened over the next few days, guys, here's what you want to watch out for. You know, here are some things that might be happening after this type of trauma. Um, and then a few days after that, they actually brought us all into the Johnson County Sheriff's office. They had clinicians in there and they did a full on peer support debriefing where everyone goes around voluntarily, um, only people that were involved in that incident and you. You kind of go through what, what's been going on. And um, our department was kind of late to the party. After that, they were like, shit, we need a peer support team. Like, we've never had this in place. We need to do something about this. And that call was kind of the catalyst. Um, and it was good for me being in a room with a bunch of sheriff's deputies. And one of them openly admitted, he goes, in 20 years, all I've ever done is respond to very bad fatality car accidents. And that was the worst one I've ever been a part of. And so hearing that, I was like, okay, like I'm three years in to hear a guy like that say that, like, okay, cool. That was a bad, that was a bad incident. And I right. would not have known that unless that senior guy spoke up and said that fucking sucked. So it kind of started to normalize some stuff I was going through. And I was like, okay, cool. Like th- this is, this is normal. And people that have been doing this a long time are speaking on it. So they come up with the concept to start a peer support program in our department. Hey, before, and, uh, before we get into that peer support at your, at your department, let, let me, ask you a few questions about that, that schism that you guys went through, because there's a, there are a lot of people that I've talked to or spoken with or recorded with that, that absolutely hate the idea of schism. And it's just because (laughs) of the way it's been done for them. And so I want to, I want to know what you think made that, that session itself 
successful for you? Like, how was it set up? How was it, how did it afford you guys the opportunity to actually speak and, and, and kind of get those things off your mind without feeling like there was this stigma or this, uh, or a forced nature to it? Yep. I think that's kind of the main thing with the debriefings is, uh, the stigma that we've had in this culture is don't talk about it, ignore it, override. Um, I can say that at that specific debriefing, I think that what made it so therapeutic and good was that there were a lot of people that were very affected by that incident that couldn't hold back their emotions. Um, some of them tried to keep quiet and, you know, some of those clinicians and they're, they're real keen on, on your body language and people that are getting reserved and they might kind of say like, hold on, you know, what do you think about this? But the main thing that I saw was, um, vulnerability. Um, people really set the tone and you saw some of these senior guys who got vulnerable and said, that was hard. That sucked. That was the worst call I've ever been a part of. And when you started to see those senior officers start to do that, you then saw some of the people underneath them say, I'm glad you said that that really sucked. And this is kind of what I've been going through, but it, it's, again, it comes to leadership and, and emotional intelligence. Um, mm. you have to understand what you're going through to be able to speak on it. You have to be aware, you have to be able to identify it and then put it into words and be humbled enough to say, yeah, I'm going through this shit. It sucks. And what I've realized in all the rooms that I've been in, when I've done those, I've never seen someone speak up on something and say, this is what I'm going through. And someone be like, the fuck are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. It just doesn't happen. More likely than not, what you're going to get is someone that just kind of shuts up and is quiet, but they're going through the same thing. They just don't want to speak on it. But in that one, I, I do think that was a special case. Like I said, like we had people who had babysat the little girls. We had, um, you know, guys who had been on law enforcement agencies with their father, um, volunteer firefighters that were involved. I mean, it was just a, a very emotional wrenching, a lot of attachment involved. And I think that you saw a lot of people just truly drop their guard. Um, because a lot of people, you know, um, you don't ever want to respond to your own child. No. And I think that that put that, that fucking fear to people like this poor highway trooper just got a call for an accident that was his, his own child, you know? So it really tugged on those emotional strings for a lot of us. It got very personal. And I think that we, as people that were involved in it and the clinicians that were involved in it did a very good job of setting a tone of like, Hey, we're going to be vulnerable. We're going to talk and, and we're going to get deep. And I think that's kind of what they try to do is say like, Hey, this is all volunteer. If you don't want to be a part of this, you don't right. have to, if you don't want to talk, you don't have to. Right. But just know that if at any moment you get up and walk out, someone's probably going to follow you out and be like, Hey, what's going on? Do you want to talk? You know, just, just to kind of see what's going on. Cause it is a pretty, um, deep, it can get pretty deep and, and bring out some stuff in people. Yeah. So yeah, that one, I, I think honestly, just a, a bunch of emotionally intelligent individuals who were okay with getting vulnerable and really setting the tone. Um, it, it was a very successful debriefing, I guess I would say. Okay. And that, and that makes sense. I, th I think a lot of the problems I've heard with, with that SISM model is that it's so forced that people, people turn on it because they just feel like, okay, you're making us do this and we're not ready to do this, yep. or it's too late to do this or, or there's something yep. out there. And so that, that's why I wanted to touch base on what made that so successful for you and for everybody in that room. When I lead them to, I get, I get that stigma. And one thing that I always try to tell people is like, maybe you're not here to try to get some relief from the trauma, or maybe you don't have things going on that you're trying to, you know, find answers to. But what this will do is it will 
paint a picture of this incident. So all those questions that you have, because you always have questions after a critical incident like that, like, why did this go down like that? Of course. We'll have dispatch in there. We'll have EMS in there. We'll have the police in there. It paints that 360 degree picture that really leaves a lot of questions unanswered. So that's something that I've seen guys be like, yeah, man, like I'm not cool with all the, the mental health stuff, but I am glad that I got closure on what the heck happened during that call because you, you get everybody's input. Right. So I think that there's, there's good things that come from it, whether it's the mental health aspect or whether it's the information we're giving out or people just being like using it as an after action, like, oh, hey, yeah, that yeah. next time we can do this a little bit better. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. All right, so now progressing. Let's talk about how you decide, well, in your county, you didn't, you yourself didn't make that decision or the, alone, but how does the county go, wait, we need to fix this for ourselves. We need to get a program in place for when this happens again, we have an internal system ready to help. Yep. So I think our county on the county level, as far as Johnson County has had kind of a peer support system in place for a while, kind of a team. Um, and then each department tries to have their own. So the way I look at it is there's kind of two aspects to peer support. There's the peer support and then there's the critical incident stress debriefing side. Mm -hmm. The peer support side is like keeping your own house clean, right? Checking in with the guys in your station, checking in with the guys at work. If someone's got going through a divorce, you're aware, you check in with them, you be that resource for, you know, mental health therapy. You've got a list of things that you can help people out with. Um, and then there's the crit critical incident stress debriefing side of the house. In my opinion, takes more of a specialized person. You're going into sometimes other departments, police departments, and that is when you're putting on that um, SISM class or, you know, the, the, the debrief or the hot wash. Kind of takes two different personalities, right? Your guy that's doing the peer support on the station is typically just, in my opinion, your, your everyday talker, your guy that wants mm. to just get to know people right. and, and really just wants to be a friend. You know, right. he's around finding out what people are going through and just talking to him through it. Um, the critical incident stress debriefing, going out and actually holding those schisms um, takes a little bit more, in my opinion. You're, you're controlling, or not controlling, but you're leading a room of people in a very critical um, time of their life. Uh, you know, volatile things can come out, people can get upset. So our, our county, some people within the county formed a uh, nonprofit, 501, called FRST, First, Rep First Responder Support Team. And it was founded by uh, Angie Jones, who worked for the KBI in the uh, Crimes Against Children Division. And basically what she saw was, I mean, she sees the worst things imaginable every day at work, Crimes Against Children, right? And she realized that within her unit, there really wasn't an avenue for people to talk and for people to, to, to work through these problems that they were seeing. So she had a background in psychology. Um, she's a master's level clinician. So she started reaching out and started this nonprofit that basically trains peer support specialists. Mm -hmm. So they put together this 40 hour class. Um, it's local here in the Kansas city Metro and they train first responder peer support specialists. And then they also provide the services. So if there's a line of duty death way out in Western Kansas in the middle of nowhere, and they don't have the 
assets at their disposal, they can call FRST and they come out there, they handle the light of duty death from beginning to finish, making sure everything's taken care of. Um, so they're kind of like the subject matter experts around the county that have kind of put this together. And a lot of it's just trickled down from the stuff that they've started. Um, but they put together this program and our department sent, um, they had kind of a, an application process where they had people nominate people. So the department had to say, who would you view someone as trustworthy that you would want to yeah. talk to if right. something was going on? Right. Cause that's kind of where I get iffy with some people's peer support programs, as I've seen some, mm-hmm. even within our county where if you are someone that wants to become an officer and you want to pad your resume, go to peer support, you know, right. it'll make you look good. People trust you. Um, so we didn't want to start it that way. So we kicked it out to the guys from the bottom floor up and wanted to find out, you know, from the ground level, who do you guys trust and who would you talk to? So they combined a list, they sent that list to administration and the administration brought the people on that list in and they had to interview through the administrators and kind of find out if they were the right fit, um, asking some questions about confidentiality. Cause that's one thing in Kansas, I don't know about all the other states, but Kansas has some state legislature for first responders and, um, peer support. So there's legislature written in Kansas that we're basically privileged, um, much like a doctor or much like an attorney, when you talk to them, as long as you don't confess to a crime, you know, something committed against children or elderly abuse, or that you're going to kill themselves, anything that you tell someone in peer support in Kansas is protected constitutionally. Like I could tell an attorney kick rocks, I could tell a judge kick rocks. Um, so that's something, um, I don't know about other states, but that's something really good that Kansas has. And they really try to kind of hone that in the confidentiality piece mm-hmm. and the uh, state legislature piece. Like, hey, you're covered. Like, let them know that what they tell us, unless it's a crime or that they want to harm themselves, they're covered. Right. Um, so that's a big piece is that confidentiality piece. Like, we want trustworthy people that aren't going to take information and go disperse it to whoever right. they want to. Um, so luckily, um, my chief at the time had kind of seen me going through my phases of getting sober. Um, it raised some red flags with HR as, as doing good things in the fire service typically does. HR raises an eyebrow. Um, and I got pulled into a couple offices and um, went to my fire chief and I was like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. He's like, I think I know what this is about. It's probably, you know, the Facebook post of you being sober for a year. And he goes, I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm proud as hell of you. I think that there's no problem. And if there was a problem, it sounds like you've resolved it yourself. And he said, I think that you'd be a great candidate for the peer support team. And I hope that you put in your, your application. And I did, that was kind of something, um, on my horizon after going through what I'd been through and the trauma in my past, I'm like, dude, I, I, I think that's where I need to be. Like I, I really do. Um, so I went through the process and they picked me, um, I got to go through the first wave of people in our department that they sent through the peer support training and, um, kind of the pioneer of it. And so it, it, uh, it was a five-day program, 40 hours, very intense, um, put on by a group of clinicians, former law enforcement, former firefighters, um, some chaplains were in there and it's, you know, very informative. They start off kind of the week, um, talking about confidentiality, setting up the legal, you know, legal parameters of what you're doing. Um, then they start kind of going into, um, mental illnesses. Um, they even have you start taking behavioral tests. You take a childhood trauma test. You take a substance abuse test just to kind of, which everyone failed, by the way. I mean, if you're (laughs) first responder, if you take that substance abuse test, you're most likely going to fail. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you find out about yourself a, a lot. Um, you start to find out that uh, everyone has issues. Like there's no such thing as normal. Like every person in there throughout the process, you would yeah. just see random people start breaking down and being like, 
that's me. I've hid this for a long time, but that's me. Um, and then you start getting into the actual um, mental health diagnosis. So the clinicians start describing what's going on. What is trauma doing to your body? And how does that affect your ability as a peer support person to talk to someone that's going through these, these trauma situations? Right. And a lot of the, the, the thing that I notice, at least in my trauma, operationally, always plugged in. At work, never had an issue. And that's mm. even talking to my operations chief who's aware of, of the stuff I've gone through. He was like, I've never had an issue of him freezing up or worried about him on scene at all. Not at all. Like he's plugged in. Now it was when I came home and I'd park my car in front of my driveway and be like, something's wrong in that house. Like mm -hmm. I just know, and I'd search the house, like something just felt off, you know? And so that they kind of explain like that's, that's trauma, right? Like that's that response that you've had ingrained in your body. They talked about what's happening to the amygdala, right? Like we're in a fight or flight response far more than your average person. So we start to atrophy in certain parts of our brain and we start to kind of grow that amygdala. So that fight or flight kicks on real quick. So, you know, starting to realize why I was getting so stressed out and just blowing my gasket mm -hmm. at home, um, it started to make sense, right? Like I, I've identified the enemy. I now know what it is. It's, it's the trauma that's built up. I'm not going to hide from it anymore. I now know where it is. Um, so they kind of identify all that stuff. You start doing some mock debriefings. Right. Um, mock in the sense of, it's the people in the room, but it is a true debriefing. You are right. bringing information. Like they literally would tell you, think of the most traumatic thing that's happened in your life that's shaped who you are. And then they would have the person that's doing the debriefing try to pull that out of you. And a lot of it is through um, like interrogation techniques, open-ended questions, trying to get someone to talk. You know, rather than being like, hey, are you okay? Yeah. Okay, cool. Good talking to you. Um, and that's a skill that as a firefighter, I wasn't trained on. So this... KBI special agent starts grilling us and we're like, oh my gosh, you can get, you know, just through talking and asking open-ended questions and, and humbling yourself and trying to find common ground, you can get a lot out of people. Yep. Um, if these people can investigate terrorists and very bad people and get them to speak about information they've done, pretty sure we can talk to our peers and get them to talk about stuff that's going on with them too. Right. So, <laughs> so um, they really set that tone for creating a environment of vulnerability, right? Like as the leader of, of these debriefings, you need to be the one that sets the tone and kind of explains. So we start off the meetings, we introduce ourselves, how we got to be a part of peer support, why I'm here, what I've gone through. I always try to explain that. So I'm not just some white coat guy, yeah. laboratory doctor that's in here trying to, trying to fix you. That's the peer part of peer support. I've been through where you, what you've been going through, or at least have an understanding of it. I understand your lifestyle. And, and I can kind of grasp that concept. Yeah, so, you, have, you have street cred. Um, exactly. Yeah, I got street cred with, with, with the people in my department. We, we, we mesh well, so let's, let's talk about what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and um, towards the end, um, they start getting into like treatment modalities that you can offer a, as a recommendation, right? Because we're not treating, and peer support, we're not treating. We're not no. medical professionals. No. Really, we're kind of a facilitator. I've got, I've got a lot of references. I got a lot of stuff that I can reach out to and people that I can get, but I can't treat you. Um, and so, you know, they started talking about treatment modalities. And one of the funny things that I found was like Lexapro and antidepressants. I think that they said their efficacy rate is like 45%. Yeah. And then they mentioned that like psychedelic experimental treatments now are upwards of like 68 to 75% efficacy. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny how you're starting to see this tide turn. Yes. Um, 
me as a peer support representative, I was talking to a psychiatrist about ketamine use. And I'm talking to her about it as a therapeutic modality. And I laughed and I was like, can you imagine like 15 years ago, a firefighter and a, and a psychiatrist talking about the functional uses of ketamine? We would be laughed at, you know, yeah. like this used to be just taboo, schedule one narcotic. And now you've got yeah. people pumping ketamine into people, making them better and using LSD and, and MDMA. Like, I mean, MDMA was actually listed as one of the therapeutic things that had a high efficacy rate. So yeah. I, I think you're starting to see clinicians and people really start to accept other modalities that are working that used to be taboo. And I can only attribute that. I see a lot of it coming from the military. You're seeing a lot of these people um, in the military that are dealing with stuff that are really shining light to different treatment modalities that are really starting to work. And um, they're being very proactive in getting them, getting them passed and allowable in the United States. Yeah. I mean, people don't, a lot of people still don't realize that ketamine treatment is, is legal in all 50 states. And the psychiatrist that I was talking to, she, I mean, she literally was emotional about trying to get it into the first responder community. Yeah. She was like, you, you, you don't understand what this is doing for people. She was like, I, I'm serious. It's changing people's lives on my table. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was funny. I was like, ketamine, like that is taboo. Used to be this bad drug that you'd see on cops and people were beating the crap right. out of all these police. And now we carry it in our ambulance and you've got it in a, in a clinic treating people. So well, the funny thing uh, there is, is, you know, it is in my county, the, the county attorney in Virginia, recreational marijuana is legal um, and medical marijuana is legal. And there's employee protections for medical marijuana use. And so yep. our county attorney looked at that and said, well, we're not testing for marijuana anymore here. So, so we have, we can, we can use THC. Obviously we can't use on duty. And there's some, there's some parameters to how we can use it. You're not supposed to be smoking yep. it obviously, but uh, but THC is not tested for anymore. And and I remember at the time, the fire chief at the time said something to me about the, you know, this is what you've been talking about. Cause I've been preaching and pro and just like promoting THC. And and he's like, this is it. You, you've got it. What are you going to do now? I said, that's great chief. I, I love that we can use it, but now let's talk psychedelics. And he just looked at me with these wide eyes, like, no, go away. We're not talking about it. And, and I was like, no, you better start talking about it. Cause it's coming. Yep. That's, that's what's next. And I have talked to people firsthand. Um, a guy I work with literally went on like a little retreat not too long ago and he's life-changing was the yep. only word that he could say life-changing. Yeah. Um, and, and if you look, um, the more that I've studied psychology, the science is there. It makes sense. Right. So you get stuck in PTSD. You're, you're kind of in a loop in your brain. Those synapses aren't truly exceeding the full potential of your brain. You take a hallucinogen and what it does is it opens up all those pathways in your brain and basically just lets your brain eat. Yeah, And it, it reopens up those pathways that you haven't used in forever. And that's when you're hallucinating, that's truly what your mind is doing is yeah. it's opening up that whole activity of the brain and letting it go. Yeah, And that's, that's where people that are stuck in trauma or stuck in PTSD. That's right. what it is. Is that brain loop is just stuck. It's, 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 it's opening, opening up and allowing for neuroplasticity is what it's doing. Exactly. Yep. And it's too, and, and it's too valuable of a tool to, to ignore. And, and thankfully with studies like the, the maps program, you know, you, things like that, that it's, be, it's becoming more and more acceptable. And, the, and like definitely. you said, the research is there and it's solid research behind it. Yep. There's no denying the research. And I know, like I've talked to people too, um, who are currently employed with uh, the local county EMS system and they're doing the micro dosing with mushrooms mm -hmm. and they swear by it. They're like, 
I, I don't care what people say. You can think what you want, but I would rather do this than take Lexapro or whatever, whatever I was yeah. on. I would rather do this. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what does the peer support look like for you today? So today, um, I kind of bounce back and forth between the two roles, um, very active, involved in peer support within my department. So, mm-hmm. um, recently we've had a lot of guys dealing with some alcohol stuff, right. And I'm because of my past and being yeah. sober, um, and kind of being open about that. I've kind of paved that way where hey, go to Travis, you know, go talk to Travis. So, um, yeah, actually one of the guys on my rig who was on that same incident that we both went through recently kind of had a crisis at work and um i've been working with him a lot of it was alcohol and it came down to that one specific call um and a lot of it too that the issues that we've been dealing with at my department have stemmed from that one call there was a ton of people involved in it um so i and that's kind of what's lucky about me is like i'm still actively working through the alcoholism right so my buddy, when he reaches out to me, I'm like, Hey, you want to go to an AA meeting? Like, what do you want to do? Like, let's you and go out to eat. We right. had a, uh, a union party, uh, that we held at our department for the holidays and it wasn't at the department. It was at a, um, like a lodge. And so alcohol was served. Of course it was. And yeah. so I talked, talked to my buddy and I'm like, Jake, are you going to go? He's like, I'm not going alcohol served. And I'm like, man, like I'll be there. I'm not I'm drinking. Like you can do this. He didn't want to go, which I totally get it. He's still pretty early on, but what, what's kind of funny, he ended up picking up overtime. And the truck that he was on ended up going anyway. He was on duty, so he couldn't drink. So it kind of worked out well. But um, I play that role a lot. I just, I try to make bonds, make relationships with the guys within my department and kind of have a a finger on the pulse of what's going on. Um, I, within my department, I'm one of the few people that they will actually kind of deploy out to go do a debriefing. Um, So I've done quite a few in the past few years. Um, The first one that I did was a... um, uh, firefighter suicide in Missouri. Um, that was <laughs> that kind of overwhelming for your first one of to come course, out and yeah. realize like this was a firefighter. His right. crew was there when it happened. A lot of hostility, a lot of tension. He was their peer support leader. Mm-hmm. So there was an animosity towards peer support where they were kind of like, this guy was peer support and it failed him. Like, what are you guys going to do to us? You know? Um, so had to get through that. And that was my first experience. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is what I'm walking into. I'm just going to get eaten apart by, by my own. Like, right. I'm going to walk into a room full of firefighters and just get devoured. And I understand what they're saying, right? Like this, this guy was peer support. I'm here trying to spit to them what this guy probably was saying to them. And, right. and he just committed suicide. Um, yeah. But in the end of it, I think all of them kind of came to the same conclusion. They were like, clearly he viewed this as being something important. He was trying to put it. He ultimately made the decision but the program and the peer support that he was pushing is, is still valid and it shouldn't be, be trampled on just because of what someone's decision was, you know? No, no it would, that a decision that, yeah, no, you can't, you can't throw, it's, it's, it's seeing the forest for the trees basically. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's, and, and I, I get it. it. It was very fresh. Those guys were pissed. Mm-hmm. They were very upset. There was a lot of emotions involved. And, you know, someone's got to be the enemy. Right. And yeah. I walked in and, and was, we were trying to help. Um, and at first there's a lot of hostility and, and same thing. If you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. So you saw a, you know, a truck show up and one guy walk in, you know, um, yeah. but all in all, we went through the whole department. Um, and I, I do think that it worked really well. Uh, we also kind of had another department come in who had recently had a, a suicide in their, their department as well. So that's kind of the thing with peer support, right? You, you want to, cater the speakers and the peer support specialists to what's happening. So 
And in, in that case, right, we realized it was a suicide. It was a firefighter and that his crew was there. So we went to Olathe, a, a, a department within our county who mm-hmm. had had that exact same situation happen very recently that, hey, we need some guys that can go out here and explain what they went through, what right. they've done and what's helped get them through this, right? Because um, there's, there's avenues that, that, that pop up in a line of duty death or in suicide that, that the department is not prepared to handle, right? right? There's, there's, there's things that they've got to go through. Like, are you going to honor this as a line of duty death? Right? Like, yeah. and there's some opinions that come into that. Um, and I wasn't aware of that until going through the peer training. Like if you start to honor these suicides as line of duty deaths, people could start to glorify that and view that as a way I can still get my, you know, my, mm-hmm. my whole funeral and it'll look great. Yeah, but I can, I can, I can do this, you know. So it, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, and I don't really know which side I stand on. Um, it's just something that, that it's one of those things that whenever these things happen, luckily peer support and people like FRST are there to kind of guide the department and give them options and, and coach them through how to be through these situations. So, uh, on your personal journey, how much have you done much therapy, or did you just kind of start to figure it out? Both, okay. um, been through, been through lots of therapy, um, uh, been through, um, you know, prescribed Lexapro, salt, uh, uh, medical professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, I got put on, I'm on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, cause they, I found that the sleep and the stress and all that, it, it, it fucked with my hormones, hormones mess with stress, stress more from the hormones. So it's just all, it's all kind of intertwined, um, for me, I went through a program not too long ago, a five-day retreat that's hosted here in Kansas City called The Battle Within. It's completely free for first responders and military. Um, I mean, they will fly you out there. We had an FBI agent from Boston that they flew out, all expenses paid. They get you out there, launch you up. You don't pay a thing. And they run you through all sorts of modalities, meditation, mm-hmm. yoga, um, physical exercise, all these things. And to me, that was kind of like, I'm super pro therapy. I love therapy. I like getting in there and talking to my therapist and working that stuff out. But to me, I, I had to find um, in peer support, one of the last things that they talked about was this, this concept of rhythms of sustainability and trying to find um, a groove or like a, a routine that's sustainable for your day. So yeah. especially for firefighters, like when you go through trauma, you've got a routine to bounce back on. You don't just right. go into hibernation and shut down. Um, and I think that the battle within showed you all these different modalities, gave you all these options and allowed you to kind of pick from them and create this rhythm of sustainability. Um, one of the things like I hated meditation at first, I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. My eyes wouldn't relax. I couldn't do it. I was constantly. And throughout that program, after five days of having a meditation specialist there, I kind of started to, to, to see the benefits. Um, right. I'm a person that's programmed for chaos. Calm is not normal to me. And so to sit in meditation and just try to breathe and focus on my thoughts was, well, it was torture at first. I hated right. it. Like I, I could not do it. Um, but I also realized that's probably what I need is to just sometimes sit in silence and calm. Yeah. So that's something I've kind of integrated in. I, uh, physical exercise, I, I, I struggle with schedule and just with timing and trying to, trying to get in there, but, mm-hmm. um, I really have no excuse. I don't think any, any firefighter, any human has an excuse for not trying to stay physically fit. It's, it's it's the, the vessel we've been given to walk through life. So we should probably take care of it. Um, but that I've noticed if I'm, if I'm working out, I'm seeing exercise, the, the ADD that I have, the, the anxiety, all that stuff kind of stays in check. If I'm doing that self-care stuff, 
um, and trying to stay in those rhythms of sustainability and just keeping um, good habits and keeping good routines so that when that trauma pops up and I get kind of disheveled, I still got that routine to fall back on, right? I still know I'm going to wake up. I'm going to meditate for a little bit. I'm going to get my breathing under control. Later on today, I'm going to work out. I'm going to you know, kick my own ass. I'm going to feel a little bit better after that, get a good meal. Because um, you start to learn about yourself, right? Like I know one of the first things wherever I get stressed is my appetite will go. Like I just, I won't really eat. And if I do, it doesn't sit well. Um, and so kind of one of the ways I realized I can work through that is, is through exercise and just trying to bring down that stress level, um, keep myself in homeostasis, you know? Um, so that's kind of for peer support where I'm at now is trying to, embody peer support, right? Trying to, to, to use measures of self-care, use those modalities, practice what I preach. Um, cause there's nothing worse in my opinion than, than being a contradicting peer support specialist, you know, like trying to tell someone how to care for themselves and you're out there being an asshole. Like it just doesn't match. I, I love that term, the, the rhythms of sustainability. That's, that's a great one. Yep. Cause it, 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 makes, it makes so sense, much right? sense. Like, it's the same if, thing. If with, you look to go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying, no, I was saying like, if you look at, <laughs> go ahead. we've got a little, we've got a lag because of weather and, and internet issues. So yeah. we apologize to, to the audience. I was going to say it, it, it's uh, it's something you can implement in anything you're trying to do. It's just same thing as diet or exercise. I mean, you, you yep. can only, your, your nutrition can only be as good as what you can sustain on a day-to-day weekend, month in basis. Yep. If you can't sustain it, it's not going to help you. It, it, it might help you in the short term, but it won't, it won't mm -hmm. change anything in the long term. So that rhythm of sustainability is so important across the board. So I love that, that kind of thought process yep. about that. And, and there's, there's different terms for it. Like, I don't know, I, I've read a lot of books on like the successful traits that the, the world's billionaires do. And if you look, that's what it is. It's they've created patterns of sustainability. They wake up early every morning, they read books. They take notes, they maintain a calendar, they're, they're, they're systematic about their life, yeah. right? And, and there's, it's, it's not coincidence that those people end up successful, right? They're, they've, they've found that rhythm of sustainability that works for them, right? And, and they stay within that rhythm, they take on extra things, but they stay within that rhythm of sustainability. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to put in it, uh, of putting it. And, and it's, I think it's a valuable thing just to keep in the back of, of your head as you go day to day. So what's life like for you today, other than the peer support and the system, what's, what's life like for you today? Man, life is good. I, I, I really, I, I'm really happy with where I'm at in life today. Um, I don't have any, as a matter of fact, just my last shift, um, one of my good buddies, we went out to go get Mexican food and he asked me, he was like, is there ever a time when you think that you'll just be like, yeah, I'll have a glass of whiskey. Like, you know, just like a really good... And I sat there and thought, and I was like, it wouldn't be whiskey. I was like, I was, I was very much a beer drinker. And I was like, I thought about this. And I was like, um, there was a period of time where the, the social aspect of the bar, right? Like just having that social draw and having people there kind of, I, I still sought after that, mm -hmm. but I'm truly at a point in my life where like, I, I don't want alcohol. I don't need it. I'm completely content with where I'm at. Um, you know, I'm my relationship with my daughter, my three-year-old who currently lives with has never been better. Like, right. um, I mean literally just, just the other night, she's like, daddy, you're my best friend. And, and <laughs> always used to be mommy's best friend. Right. You know, so just seeing those small things build up, the small steps are working. Um, one thing that I used to always, whenever I was going through all my trauma, my wife was seeing it and I tried to explain like, how do I put this into terms? Cause she can't, I can't get her to understand what I'm going through. And the only concept that I could come up with, the metaphor that I used was it's like 
whenever we go to extrications, they give us safety glasses, right? And you have mm-hmm. a fresh pair of glasses and you go out there and you get dirt on them and you get crap on them and you keep going out there and you keep getting dirt and crap on them and you never clean them. So eventually like everything that you see, everything that you perceive is through these dirty lenses. And that's just what you see. That's the world around you. Right. And I was like, that's where I'm at. Everything that I see is distorted and I can't tell the difference. And so I think now um, going through all these programs, going through principle, where I'm at now is I've kind of found ways to clean those lenses, right? All yeah. of these different modalities, all of talking to you, talking to these people, reading, reading these books, listening to these podcasts gives you hope and it gives you different avenues of what has worked for people. And, and that's kind of where I'm at is just diving in, um, trying to be a part of the solution, figuring out what's working for people, working that into my game, seeing if it works for me. And if it doesn't, that's totally fine. I, I think in the mental health realm, a lot of people will be like, uh, EMDR is bullshit. It doesn't work. Well, maybe not for you, but I know people that swear by it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so there's, yep. you kind of got to try it and see if it works. Like I was totally against meditation. And then I was like, this shit kind of works for me. Yeah, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head there. there it's it's a, such a personal thing. You if if you hear anybody, it's just like the fire service. It, it, if there's a, always a never, they're probably wrong. Just to be honest, if them tells you always or never, yep. ignore it. I agree because 100%. there's never and always, and there's never and never, and it's it that that can kind of go across the board. Therapy, fire service, whatever it is. It, it, if you hear always or never, be 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 leery of what that advice is going to be. So you got to find it for yourself. You got to try on these hats and see what fits. So, all right, let's get to my last two questions. That's kind of what I like about the fire service too. Go, go ahead. Yeah. The, 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 you know, trying on the hat. That's kind of what I like about the fire service is like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's the gray area. You got to find out what works. Like it's not black or white. You're working in the gray area. Let's get to those last two questions I have about uh, an everyday carry. What's something yep. that you, you carry with you every day yep. that if you leave home without, you feel naked? I'd say my, my pocket knives, um, quite a knife guy. Um, we have, I have a, a buddy who actually owns Finch knives. It's a, it's a company here locally, pocket, make pocket knives. So I got about five of those knives and I've always got one of them on me whenever I leave the house. Um, I use my knives as tools. Most of them have been used to force doors open <laughs> into buildings rather than cut anything. So. As long as it's a rugged knife that won't fucking snap, I'm, I'm good. So, so Finch knife, F-I-N-C-H? Correct. Yep. Finch knife. Yep, I see it. I just wanted to look it up. I'm, as you, as you're talking, I'm looking some stuff up. So I've, I've bookmarked yeah. a few things. So I, I, I love these conversations where I'm, I'm, I'm getting bits and pieces of stuff. So exactly. Yep. Uh, what's, what's the go-to knife today then? Uh, the, uh, I don't know if it's on their website anymore. It's the Tycoon. Tycoon. Um, okay. Tycoon, T-I-K-U-N-A. I, I looked recently and they don't have it anymore. All right. Um, but there's one too. The Runtley is a pretty small one that's got a weird shaped blade. And I actually really like that one. Um, it's it's perfect for just like a small everyday carry. It's the, the knife compacted is maybe two and a half or three inches. It's got a almost kind of like a razor blade shaped yep. knife blade. It's, no, it's a cool little knife. It's the same shape of the Gerber that I carry on, on when I'm on duty. So uh, do you have the, the Gerber Fast Assist Tonto? Yeah, yeah. That's the exact knife I carry. That's a badass knife. I yeah, love that thing. I love, I, yeah, my coworker keeps making fun of me for it, but he can, he can, in, in joking around, he can fuck off. I'm going to carry it. So I don't yeah, care. No, that's, yeah. that's a badass knife. I, that's yeah. the one I carry at work. Yeah. yeah. I love it. So, all right. So what about a book? Give, give me a book idea that, that you think is valuable for the audience. So uh, the, the book, um, and I, the ones I've listened to, I haven't heard anyone recommend this one. I've heard quite a few books, uh, like the body keeps the score, mm-hmm. um, 
the terminal list. Someone mentioned that's on my nightstand, but one that I haven't heard that I think was the most influential book to me in my life. And actually when David passed away, I buried it. I put it in his coffin. Um, Fearless, the, the Adam Brown story. I don't know if, if you've read that or if you've heard about that. I haven't that. heard of it. So um, true story. It's a, uh, about a SEAL Team 6 operator who his whole life, um, he, he grew up in Arkansas. He was a he drug addict, ended up getting into crack cocaine. Very bad drug addict, but um, kind of worked his way up. Got a couple lucky breaks, knowing some people who got him in. And he ended up making his way all the way up to the, the tier ones, you know, unit that ended up catching Osama bin Laden. Um, and it, it does a good job of illustrating it's not a, it's not a, a linear path, right. right? Like he had ups and downs. He had ups and downs the entire way, um, even when he got there, which is kind of amazing that he would admit like, yeah, I stumbled when I was at this elite unit. Um, but it really does a great job of illustrating that there's a love story tied into it. There's, there's spirituality tied into it. Um, every person I've ever recommended that book to from my mom, to my wife, to friends, has said nothing but great things. Awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in there and people can check it out. Absolutely. Hey, is there anything that you feel like you want to add? No, man. Um, I, like I said, I, I really support what you guys are doing. Uh, I'm glad to be a part of the show. I, I hope that some of the listeners out there, maybe something resonated with them or something in my story kind of um, relates to their story. Cause that's, that's why I did this. I, I heard a podcast at one point. I've heard your guys's and I heard someone say too, like the stories are all different, but the message is the same. Yeah. Um, so if you just listen with open ears, man, there's, there's something to relate to in all these stories. And I'm going to do a little side note. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to what you mentioned about the, the, the guy who you got the number, the phone number of the chief now that's down, down in Lawrence. Yeah. And you said that there's these people, and we both talked about it. There are these people that are, that just coming out of the goodness of their heart. They don't care. They're going to give you the information. They're going to help you. They're going to guide you along yep. the way. And then there are the others that are just kind of in it for themselves, basically. And, um, then you, you went ahead and you mentioned behind the shield as well. And, and I, as many times as yep. I can, I love to give a shout out to, to my friend, James Gearing, because he was one of those guys that he didn't yep. care. He, 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 it's, it's, uh, his, his theory is a rising tide lifts all boats. And when I was thinking of doing this show, I, I looked at his show and I said, that's kind of what I, I like. That's the style I like, cause he has such an engaging style and his, it's a very easy style. And so I sent him a message. I said, Hey man, what, what can you tell me? Or are you even willing to tell me? And I think it was like two minutes later, he, he hits me right back with his phone number and a day. And he said, call me. And yep. I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? And I said, I'm not going to bother yep. this guy. And he said, no, I'm serious. Call me. I called him on a Saturday. We talked for like two hours and it, we can still check. And that, of course he's been on my show now and I've been on his show. And, and that's, that's just a genuine human being that's looking out yep. for people. And that's the same person you ran into. And, and it's yep. wonderful to, to, when you experience those people. Yep. Pioneers, man. We got to keep those people where they're at. They, yeah. they, they're the ones leading our, for sure. There's a reason he's going on towards a thousand episodes and he's just, he's a good person and he, and he does a great job. Yep. Yep. I, I totally agree, man. He's, he's really setting the tone and then and same thing with you. This, this stuff needs to get out there and you guys are doing a great job of, of putting it out there so people can hear it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate all the time you just took with me. No, I appreciate it very uh, much. This, Thanks for having me on. This one's going to probably be out towards February, maybe even towards the end of February. I've got a few in the, in, in recorded already. I'm just trying to figure out what order I'm going to release them in. So bear with me and I will let you know when it's coming out. And, and you know, my normal social media blitz that I do a show. So yep. I, I will tag you in a few of those and we'll go from there. Right on, man. All right, man. Well, That's you got good. my number. If you need anything, reach out. All right. And we'll be in touch. Sure thing. Same to you, man. All right, man. Take care. Peace. Take care. We're out. See ya.
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.